I ask that you stop them, Lord, by your word as you stop me. Where I was left with nothing more but to one on door. By your spirit, Lord, you can do it.
Remember when we said last week is that if the church doesn't have the gospel, they don't have God. They call themselves by his name, gather, they lost the gospel. You ain't got God. He only comes with his presence where his precepts are. You lose the gospel, you're done. So of course Emmanuel wants to protect the gospel. And here's the other major thing that we've got to keep in the nuclear reactor core of our fellowship. And that is, it's got to be Christ-centered. He's got to be in the middle of everything. Well, great, that's no brainer. No, it's not. No, it's not. Many of the biggest churches, the reason they're big is because they're man-centered. You start preaching Christ and him crucified, and the whole council of God, yeah, like the, the book down. That's how you build churches. There's two ways to build the church. God's way and man's way. And the devil loves man's way. Remember when, when, uh, when Jesus asked the disciples, who did men say that I am? And Peter tried to stop him going to the cross. What did, what did Jesus say? He said, you're thinking as the devil. No. Jesus said, you're thinking as man thinks. That's one of the biggest body slams to the human race that's ever been spoken. Jesus told Peter after Satan spoke through him, You're not speaking as God speaks, you're speaking as man speaks. He didn't invite the devil. Because the devil has all kinds of material to work with from fallen human nature. I've got to go over this text. Now, being Christ centered, I know all the Old Testament prefigures the Lord Jesus and points to him. And then the New Testament, of course, is the fulfillment of it. And the New Testament just squirts. And of course, Jesus told the disciples that he made his road in 24. He showed them all that was written of him in the law and the Psalms and the prophets. The whole Old Testament was yet. Right, but now the New Testament. All of it, of course, is about him. And uh, you don't have to be under a preacher very long to tell who they're focused on. Him or them. The best way to care for them is to be focused on him. Best way. Oh, Louie, Louie, it's all about you. There's all these sermons in that guy. You can sit and listen to him for like 30 seconds. You know exactly where the guy's coming from. I need to deter the stomach. He's like, stop trying to pander to the people. That's not how you care for them. You lock eyes with him and do whatever he tells you. Say whatever he says. But there are five, what I call, choice Christological chapters, uh, or portions of the Word in the New Testament, that um, are worthy of memorization, and they so magnify the person and the work of the Lord Jesus, indispensable. Um, John chapter 1, verses 1 through 18, the prologue. That's one of those ones you should be memorized. Okay? And uh, another one, Philippians chapter 2, the Carmen Christi. Philippians chapter 2, verses 6 through 11. Call the current Christian about the Lord's incarnation, humiliation, and exaltation, suffering. The other was Colossians chapter 1, verses 15 uh, through 21. And then the other one is Hebrews chapter 2, which deals with Jesus' humanity. And then the one we're going to cover today is Hebrews chapter 1, which covered Jesus' deity. And it's going to be a miracle. Oh, I can't believe the time is making up. I mean, I got a headache last night, stuck in my brain with scripture. I was like, oh. I mean, it was a nice day. Yeah, you have to have one? Is that you're just going to count on it again? Because I spent so much time just reading the Greek, uh, all week in the Greek, and Greek commentaries, Greek, you know, illumination of the text. But 
right now we got to just get the text itself, so to speak, though the Greek was given the text. But, verse 1. Now, in your Bible, most of the likely says, God, who spoke in times past in many portions of many ways to the prophets, has in these last days spoken to us through the Son. That's not really the Greek. The Greek, word order in Greek is more important than it is in English. The Greek, when they wanted to say something is important, it emphasized it would be at the beginning of the sentence. So guess what's at the beginning of the sentence in Hebrews? Well, it's not God, of course, he's the priority in everything, but it's different portions and in different ways. That's the first thing. When the Holy Spirit saw it, he inspired the writer of the Hebrews. What was he talking about? In different portions and different ways. In other words, when the, when the Lord was revealing His eternal plan, the person of the Son, in the Old Testament, it was always striking terror. One person didn't get it all. So when he throw it out, I can't pronounce it right, but throw it and yeah. Genesis 3.15, okay? Um, but of course, after the fall, and what did you know, the Lord tell him that the, 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 the seed of the woman was coming. Here's the first temple, okay? We're, we're getting something here. And he is going to suffer personal and an injury, but he's going to his head's open. So that was the first hint. And then it goes, you know, it keeps going on. And then you see that this person that's coming is going to be a Jew. All the nations of the earth are going to be a Jew. Okay? Here we go. Okay? And we find out that not just the Jew, but he's going to be from the line of David. And David will not fail to have someone sit on this throne forever. Ah, so little things about it like this. They get little pieces of the puzzle, but they're all fragmentary. That's what the author's saying. And so, what else do we find out from Micah? We find out where this person that's coming is going to be born in Bethlehem. And Daniel, uh, we know that uh, he's going to have a kingdom that once was established after Rome and Rome falls. His kingdom has started during the time of Rome, and no other kingdom is your kids and kids. That's when the kingdom of God was set up when the Lord Jesus came and inaugurated his work. And it just keeps growing and growing and growing. And there's no other, oh, that was nice. What's the next thing? There is no other kingdom coming. That's what the Lord revealed to Daniel. He also revealed to Daniel that the Messiah will be cut off. Isaiah, we saw this morning. Oh, my dear. Yeah, maybe of all the prophets, he definitely had the most insight and revelation of the Messiah. And of course, you heard some of it, but we have a miraculous virgin birth. And it would be a male. What else? Oh, you know, deity. With all the titles in, in Isaiah chapter 9, verse 6. Um, and his rest will be glorious. And all the nations will go for him. So Isaiah is getting Is that, of course, Isaiah 53, the crown jewel of the Old Testament? Is that part of this person is who's coming? This Messiah, something dreadful is going to happen to him. Where he's going to bear the iniquity and the sins of his people. And the Lord himself. Yahweh is going to lay the sins of his people on this suffering servant. So it says in different portions and in different manners. You know all the different ways that the Lord spoke. Where he spoke in angels and dreams and theophanies and angelologies. And there were angelophanies, as you say. And in different ways, um, just in different manners that the Lord spoke to the prophets, kind of communicating with them with miracles and visions and dreams. But that's not really what this text is talking about. It's not how the Lord spoke to the prophet. It means how the prophet spoke to the people. In many ways. Ezekiel says he lay on the side for 390 days and he ate food cooked over animal dung. Why? Showing the plight of the Israelites. 
their captivity that was coming and how they defied themselves with sin and abandoning the Lord. Then he had Ezekiel also build a mound, a siege mound in Jerusalem. And then he was going to build up ramparts against it. What are you doing, Ezekiel? What are you trying to tell us? Are you going to captivity? And there were so many different ways that the prophets spoke to Israel. Now, here's the thing to remember. Of all the nations of the earth, God has absolute sovereign freedom to have mercy on whom he wants to and whom he doesn't want to. If he can't do that, he's not God. No, you have to be you have to choose the Amorites and the Hittites and the Jebusites and the Philistines. No, he doesn't. No. Of all the nations of the earth. Now get this now, because this is very important. God did not choose Israel, because Israel was special. Israel is special because God chose them. And God knows the nature of men. He was very emphatic that Israel had to keep hammering it to her. I didn't choose you because I saw anything in you. There were at least three texts in the Old Testament that said that Israel became more evil than the nations surrounding her. My entire renegade flag. There's no flag of Philistines as far as God's concerned. They all look like this seriously. Israel became worse and more evil than them. And God even had Israel wipe them out. Did the Lord know when he, did he know when he chose Israel that she would become more evil than them? Sure he did. He still chose them. If you don't understand that, you don't understand what God chose you. You're thinking yourself spiritually. Well, I said, oh, I had this in me, or what did I do? Shut your mouth. You're only going to be embarrassed to judge today. You see that it all had to do with him. He spoke to our fathers in times past through the prophets. Bargain bells are everywhere. You know how hard it is to find a ten dollar? This is awesome. It says that he spoke in times past for the parents. The prophets were created. They were mortal. They were finite. They were sinners. They came from the dust, and to the dust they would return, except for Elijah and Enoch. You see, in those days, may I say this, you want to understand the epistle of the Hebrews, unless you understand the major reason why it was written. The epistle of the Hebrews was written to warn Hebrew Christians not to go back to the old system, which is what they were being tempted with. They wanted to go back to the old ways. And the author of the Hebrews, the Holy Spirit came on him to write this, to keep them from doing so. That's the main reason the epistle was written. Alright? So he's comparing Jesus in the New Covenant, the Old Covenant. And the people who brought you the message of the Old Covenant, they were prophets, highly esteemed, but they were men. I want that's what he used to do in those days. Preaching to children, and to be honest with you, it's very hard to preach any other way than I do. 
His radiant splendor. His radiant splendor. It says in 1 Timothy chapter 6, verse 16, that God dwells in unapproachable light. At the transfiguration, Matthew chapter 17, remember? Jesus called Peter, James, and John. You know what he said? Hey, bros, this tree free? That mountain with me. They go up there. What does he do? He was transfigured before them. His face shone like lightning. His clothes were whiter than any wanderer could make them. So you know what Jesus was telling them? Hey, bros, this is who I pray today. But I keep the light off for your sake. So that's that aspect of the glory of God. But the far more important one, and resplendent, is this one. The glory of God is the manifestation of God's perfections. The glory of God is the revealing or the manifestation of His perfections. Every single aspect, hard to see uh, this, but only the second time using this one. But it just came to me as I meditated on this. As I think about it, every characteristic, attribute, quality of God, Jesus has. His wisdom, His holiness, His righteousness, His purity, His holy anger, which is adorable. Preachers rob God by not preaching the wrath of God is one of the most adorable things about Him. One of the reasons that you're not under it anymore. And so here, the glory of God, all of His perfections are radiating in Jesus. And it says that Jesus is the exact representation of God's character. Colossians 1.15, it says that Jesus is the image of God. In the Greek there, it's icon. We get our icon. How many of you have an icon on your phone? Hello, Jesus is just a man thinking he's God. Really? Have you ever tapped the icon on your phone, beloved? Well, it's just a little square button on the phone. Oh, really? Tap it. Amen? You tap that little icon, it opens up to the universe of the internet. Image! Icon! Of the invisible God. Philip, have I been with you for so long, and still you say, show us the Father? Don't you know when you see the Father, you see me? John 14, 9. John 12, 45, when you see me, you see the Father. To John 10.30, I and the Father are one. Now, cults love that verse because they misinterpret it. The Greek says they can see Jesus is the same person as the Father, and they only reveal themselves at different times. That's a heresy that United Pentecostals embrace today. Always been a heresy called modalism. Now, Jesus is a different person from the Father. In that verse, John 10.30, you know what the Greek says? The Father, he, we are one. Plural. It's a plural verb. We are one. In other words, we share the same essence. The divine eternal essence of all of its attributes. We are one. So he's the image of the invisible God. Now, all of a sudden, through whom he made the universe, which we already talked about. The Lord Jesus being the creator of all things, both seen and unseen. Now, but all of a sudden, something, we stop climbing the ladder of this exaltation and glory, and something inconceivable happens. First track.
100 million angels worshiping him. And a billion for the second. Next. In the billionth of a second, beloved, he goes from the glory of heaven being surrounded by innumerable angels to be a microscopic human being, God man, in Mary's womb in Nazareth. Why? Thank you. Why? Because the next part of that verse is, because the next part of that verse says, he was all of us. It says, after he provided purification of sin. Is Katarina still in here? Is she outside? Is she here today, Katarina? I call, you guys call her Catherine Crew. Her name is Katarina. I always tease her by the Martin Luther's wife. Is she here? Anyone else here? Catherine, first or middle name? Okay, okay, okay we got Catherine and Catherine. Here's why. The Greek there is Katharismos. It's, it's where we get our name Catherine from. It says, after Jesus! Provided the catheterization of our sin. I love what one scholar said. He affected the purgation. Burned it right out of us. Oh. Yeah, that was. The eternal son, surrounded by all his angels, didn't have any blood. Couldn't die. That's why he dropped, so to speak, from the ladder to the lowest. For a little while, he was too, he was made lower than the angels. Why? The suffering of death. Now it's interesting, he's insulting the glories of the pre-incarnate Christ, and he only mentions one little reference like that. After he provided the purgation, you know why? It's because he's going to spend so much of the rest of the epistle on Jesus as high priesthood. But here's the awesome thing. Your, your Bible might say, after when he by himself purified us from sin, that's not in the Greek, and here's the, it doesn't need to be, that was added, I believe by King James Version, but it doesn't have to be. You know why? Because the Holy Spirit inspired the author to put it in the middle voice. When someone often in Greek does something in the middle voice, it means they're doing it for themselves. So Jesus did it by himself, he did it for himself. He did it for his behalf. What? Taking our sins away. And this scholar said that the, the middle voice does more than inserting and adding to it by himself. What did he do then? After he had provided permission to sin, he says, I lost the Lord. It says, he took his seat at the right hand of the majesty of the high. He couldn't get any more glorious, beloved, essentially. You can't add to God or take away from him. That's why heretics, uh, and there's a real, real popular one. Uh, I'm not gonna say he's not a Christian, but he has a lot of influence in the world. And he's got a real bad theology of Jesus. A bad one. Because he thinks that when Jesus became a man that he emptied himself of some deity. No, he didn't. If he could empty himself of deity, he wasn't deity in the first place. Because one of the characteristics of deity is it is not changeable. The deity can take something and add it onto itself like it's 
humanity, but who can't throw an Indian deified cargo off. So here Jesus became even more gloriously exalted as far as, how do I say, attributed glory than he had if he had to become a man and affected the purgation. Now that's why it says God is highly exalted him and given him a name as what every Now, and he inherited a name because of what he did. That is superior to the angels. He has become so much more superior to the angels as the name that he inherited was greater than theirs. But why all of a sudden would the author start talking about angels? But that kind was jarring. We're bringing them into picture four. Picture four. Remember, he's writing to warn Jews not to go back to the old covenant. Why would he bring up angels? Because when Moses gave the law on Mount Sinai, it was not from the Lord. Ultimately, it was, of course. The Lord gives the angels, Galatians 3, 19, Acts 7, 38, Acts 7, 53, Hebrews 2, 2. The Lord gives the mediators of angels. And so in the Jewish mind, and understanding themselves, angels were right. As far as right and glory, they were right under God. So all of a sudden, here comes this author of this writer, and he's saying Jesus is higher than the angels. In the first century Jewish mind, they're coming to one thing. Uh, this harbor said was God. No wonder they tried to kill him so many times. It says he received the name that was superior to the angels. He became as much more superior to the angels as the name he inherited in his superior to theirs. Now watch. Then he starts to quote seven verses from the Old Testament to prove this. For which of the angels did God the Father ever say? And I love how the Greek brings it out better. Your versions will say, You are my son, this day I have begotten thee. But in the Greek it says, Son of mine you are. I'm glad Caleb's not here today, my youngest son is not embarrassing. But when he was a little boy, all the time, I go, I point at him, you're mine, you're mine, you're mine. And then after a while, I did it so much for so many years that I just used to go like this. <laughs> so you went up the bear and said that to him, he knows what he's doing. But there was something as a father, he's mine, he's my son. Belongs to me. He came from me. I mean, of course, right. I can't do it without her. But I'm talking about the context of the father-son relationship. You're right. Bear will probably not remember the answer to that. I think you guys tell him. All right. But that's what swells in the heart of a father. And that's what. And the author's saying, you guys are really exalting these angels. Can you tell me any angels that God ever said that to? Angels are called the sons of God in the plural, never in the never in the singular. John chapter 1, Psalm 89, the sons of God, but never one angel is called the Son of God. Or, I will be a father to him, and he will be a son to me. 2 Samuel 7, 14. No, no angel has ever told that by God. Or, this was added for the first time, and I can hardly wait. You know what? I hope you guys just give me pictures. I'm going to be gone for, you know, a couple weeks, so I get out of town, and I'm going to try you're going to look. Is this one? Okay. So then it says the first verse. And when he again brings his son, his firstborn, into the world. Chapter 3. Thank you. Time to go back, son. Hear the horses? 